Chapter 7. The Beast from the Earth The TV cameras were trained on the trim, middle-aged man who sat ready on the interview set. The director's finger signaled the last five seconds of the countdown, and the program host began. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to America's number one Sunday morning opinion show. I'm your host, Timothy Martin, and today I am honored to have as my guest a man who is undoubtedly the most talked about religious leader in the world today. Would you please welcome Archbishop Damon Detherow, recently appointed head of the United Council of World Religions. Martin stood, and Detherow entered, a warm smile spreading across his face as he waved at the studio audience. He shook hands with the host and beamed at the crowd until the applause subsided. Archbishop Detherow, Martin said, I'm sure everyone in our network audience knows about all you've accomplished in your illustrious career, but let me summarize. You were originally the pastor of an evangelical megachurch, and you gained a wide following through your mesmerizing oratory your religious insights, and your uncommon desire to unify people of all faiths. With unity as your focus, you built your church into the largest religious gathering in the world. And then, after 20 years, you left your pastorate at the peak of your success. Can you tell us why? Thank you for your kind words, Tim. Believe me, I deserve none of the credit. It has all been the Lord's doing. I left my congregation because it became clear that God was calling me to a much broader ministry, one that reaches out to people of other faiths as well. By other faiths, I presume you mean all Christian denominations, Martin said, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics. Yes, I do mean Christians of any stripe, the pastor replied. But God is calling me to reach out even further. His tent is much larger than we think. He has revealed to me that all people who worship a higher power are actually worshiping him, whether they know it or not. Are you saying that Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and Christians all worship the same God? Detherow beamed his trademark smile. God is so big, so universal, so inscrutable that no one should presume to understand the ways he reveals himself. That the Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims may not see God with the same eyes you and I do does not mean they are not connected to him or that their religion is not authentic. The truth they see is illuminated by their own light within. Yet we've long heard Christians claim that the only way to God is through Christ. Doesn't this divide them from the devoted practitioners of other religions? Yes, it does. Detherow sighed, shaking his head. And it is so sad that they cannot see we are all worshiping the universal one, whether we call him Jehovah, Jesus, Allah, the Great Spirit, or whatever. Christianity has been too exclusive to see this broader truth. I feel God's hand upon me to change that. You have initiated practices within Christianity that will lead to this change, have you not? Yes, but I can't claim exclusive credit for that. Many other respected church leaders and writers have encouraged Christians to borrow mystic practices from other religions in order to sweep away the roadblock of rational thinking and open themselves to real faith. You see, true spirituality transcends rationality. So those who embrace these practices find themselves in touch with God and at one with the universe. They come to realize that they are part of God themselves. 
This is what will unite the religions of the West and the East. But surely you don't mean to welcome satanic or occult religions into your inclusive tent. Once we understand the ultimate goodness of God, we see that he works on two fronts. On the one hand, he draws us with his love. On the other, he goads us forward through pain and suffering. When we truly understand the benevolent intentions of God, we realize that God is merely the name we give to the drawing force before us, and Satan is the name we give to the prodding force behind us. But at heart, they are one and the same. The goal of both is to bring us into the universal oneness of all being. Pastor, what is your ultimate hope as Archbishop of the United Council of World Religions? My hope is, with God's help, to bring about unity among all religions. Christ himself called his church to an undivided oneness. This is what I dream of fostering. In other words, Martin said, you hope to achieve a one-world religion. Among those watching the interview was Judas Christopher. Now that his position as the Prime Minister of England was secure, he had his sights set on Europe. As the interview progressed, his pleasure grew. When the program ended, Christopher called his aide. Chambers, have Archbishop Detherow flown here immediately. I must meet with him. The next day, a dazed Archbishop Detherow sat in a plush chair by the fireside at Number 10 Downing Street, facing Prime Minister Christopher, who was now the de facto leader of the Western world. With little prelude, the Prime Minister got right to the point. You made it clear in yesterday's interview that your goal is to unite all the religions of the world. I have long admired your remarkable success in breaking down the walls between religions, and especially in moving Christians in America away from their attitude of exclusivity. It's been easier than I could have predicted, Mr. Prime Minister. The Western collapse of critical thinking has helped immensely, virtually obliterating the concept of absolute truth and leading people to rely more on emotion than on reason. The demand for rational proof for their beliefs has virtually gone out the window. Then, with American affluence thrown into the mix, you end up with people who are bent on indulging their desires, people who think they are entitled to a life of ease. With this mindset, they are easily led away from sacrificial religious concepts to those that promise feel-good spirituality and prosperity. The Prime Minister nodded, and Etherow went on. Values-free education and a media that bombards people with 24-7 entertainment have also had an impact. People no longer rely on the Bible as either their standard for living or their source of truth. In fact, Few people even bother to read it anymore. Christopher let Detherow's words hang in the air for a moment before breaking the silence. How quickly do you think you could achieve your goal of a one-world religion if you had the power of the state behind you? Detherow felt his heartbeat quicken. What are you thinking, sir? Consolidation. Just as the time is right for a one-world religion, it is also right for a one-world government. You have my attention, Mr. Prime Minister. Historically, government and religion have been the primary ruling forces in people's lives, Christopher explained. 
Political states in the past have consolidated their power by merging these forces into one. Think of the Islamic states today, the Catholic state fusion of medieval Europe, Israel under David and Solomon, and the ancient Medo-Persians. Since your goal in the religious realm is the same as mine in the political arena, I propose that you and I form a liaison and unite our purposes. I, I hardly know what to say. I am humbled that you would think to include me. Christopher rose to his feet. Well, I would love to keep discussing this, but it will have to be at another time. I have an important event to attend tomorrow, and I must prepare. Of course, Mr. Prime Minister. It's been in the news for weeks. You are addressing the assembled Congress of the European Nations at the Great Hall in Rome, are you not? Yes, and then from the balcony overlooking the square, I will address an assembly of the people. Christopher looked straight at Detherow. Remain here in London. Think on my suggestion, and we'll meet again the day after tomorrow once I return. The next day, Detherow rose early, still heady over the opportunity before him. His mission in life was about to be combined with the authority of the state headed by the most influential leader in the world. All morning he sat in his hotel room, tapping out proposals on his laptop to present to the Prime Minister. Just before noon, he took a break for lunch. He flipped on the TV, and immediately a news flash interrupted the regular programming. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just learned that Prime Minister Judas Christopher has been shot in the head while delivering his speech in Rome. According to the attending physicians, he has sustained mortal wounds and will not survive. Detherow fell back into his chair, stunned. His hope of heading the first consolidated world religion had risen to soaring heights only to plunge like Icarus into a black sea of vast disappointment. He stared at the screen as reporters regurgitated the horrific details over and over. The phone rang, startling Detherow out of his daze. Archbishop Detherow, a commanding voice said. I am the head of the Prime Minister's secret intelligence detail. You must fly to Rome immediately. The doctors say the Prime Minister's body will not last the night. It would please the people to know that during his last minutes, a man of God was with him. Your flight to Rome has been booked, and a limousine is already on the way to take you to Heathrow Airport. Four hours later, Dethero entered the ICU in Rome's Salvatore Mundi International Hospital. The secret intelligence agent met him at the door. We want you to say a prayer over the Prime Minister before he dies, the agent whispered. A cameraman is here to record the prayer so it can be broadcast around the world. Detherow was ushered through a cluster of dignitaries to Christopher's body, which lay still amid a tangle of tubes and wires. Detherow stepped up to the bed and began to pray, still trying to absorb this turn of events. Suddenly, everyone in the room began murmuring and one of the nurses shrieked. Detherow opened his eyes and jumped back. The Prime Minister was sitting up, looking strong and healthy, as if nothing had happened. Someone unhook me from these tubes and remove this bandage from my head, Christopher demanded. A nurse quickly attended to him. Gasps filled the room as the onlookers caught a glimpse of his head. There was no evidence that Judas Christopher had even been wounded. What are you staring at? He asked his stunned audience. If you will please step out, I will get dressed. As the dignitaries filed out in stunned silence, Christopher called out, Detherow, I want to see you in my office in two days. We have plans to make. Then the Prime Minister got up, 
put on his suit, and marched out of the room. Within the span of 24 hours, the Congress of the European Nations reconvened with Christopher Present and elected him president of the newly formed Ten-Nation Coalition. The next morning, Archbishop Detherow again sat in Judas Christopher's office. This time, the atmosphere was eerily different. He felt a sickening chill creep up his spine the moment Christopher entered the room. It was as if some invisible evil presence accompanied him. But since Detherow didn't believe in the concept of evil, he dismissed the feeling as superstition. Mr. President, Detherow blurted out, like the rest of the world, I am still reeling from your miraculous recovery. There is no way you should be alive, and yet here you sit, strong and healthy, without even a trace of your encounter with death. Can you explain this? Deep down, I think you know who I am, and I think you know who you are. Archbishop Detherow did know who President Christopher was. As he looked back on his quest to unite all religions, he now realized that from the very beginning he had actually been in the service of a dark master, the archenemy of God. His quest for religious unity had merely been a prelude to his real mission, which was to lead the world to worship a being of immense power, one who was determined to wrest the world from God's hands. The archbishop threw himself wholeheartedly into Judas Christopher's quest to clinch political power by fusing it with the universal impulse to worship. And Detherow knew just what needed to be done. They must redirect worship from the world's multiple gods to one godlike being. If they could capture people's spirits, their minds and bodies would soon follow. Two plans came to Detherow immediately, as if they'd been thrust into his mind by some outside force. The first mimicked the ancient prophet Elijah's miracle of calling down fire from heaven. Detherow had a massive altar built in the temple, and he called people to come to Jerusalem to witness the return to the traditional Jewish sacrificial system. With a large crowd gathered around, he proclaimed, This is a day to celebrate, regardless of what religion you subscribe to. As a symbol of our solidarity, let fire come and ignite this offering. Sure enough, the offering went up in flames, and the event was the talk of every synagogue, church, and mosque around the world. Now Detherow knew it was time to prepare for the second miracle. This event, he was certain, would tip the balance and convince the world that the powers of the heavens were fully aligned with Judas Christopher. Detherow conscripted a group of the most talented sculptors in the world to carve an intricate statue of a man. More than 30 feet tall, the statue was of heroic proportions in the classic Greek style. The face was an exact likeness of Judas Christopher. No seams or imperfections were visible. Everything had been overlaid with bronze to polished perfection. Christopher made plans for Detherow to return to Jerusalem to initiate their one world religion in the newly constructed temple. The Jewish leaders think you are coming merely to dedicate the new temple, but you know what to do. I have arranged for the event to be broadcast throughout the world. The appointed day came, and the temple's court of Gentiles teemed with thousands of spectators. Both Jews and non-Jews had flocked to Jerusalem to witness the historic occasion. 
Electronic screens the size of billboards had been erected throughout the temple court, assuring everyone a clear view of the proceedings. As government officials and dignitaries arrived in limousines, they were ushered to their designated chairs on a specially constructed platform. When the clock struck noon, everyone on the platform rose as a soloist, sang the international anthem. When the final notes died away, Archbishop Damon Detherow stepped up to the podium. Ladies and gentlemen, and noted guests, I welcome you to this historic occasion. Today, I have the honor of dedicating this temple as the central place of worship for the entire world. Today, we will affirm that heaven has now come down and vested itself in the lives of humankind. No longer will your God be distant. No longer will belief in him be optional. Today, you will witness a phenomenon that will remove all doubt that he is among us. The high priest, Asa Zechariah, wondered at the meaning of Dethro's enigmatic words, but he said nothing. As you know, the archbishop continued, only priests can enter the temple's holy place. So at this time, I will ask high priest Zechariah to enter the sanctum with 12 attending priests as you watch the proceedings on the screens. As the high priest entered the room, he stopped short. Two men stood before the curtain that covered the most sacred place in the temple, the Holy of Holies. What are you doing here? the priest demanded. Without answering, the two men gripped the edges of the massive curtains and parted them. The twelve priests gasped in horror and turned their faces away. Only the high priest dared to look up. His eyes widened as he cried out in anguish, the Ark of the Covenant is gone, and in its place. His words were swallowed up in a wail of anguish. The other priests followed his gaze into the sacred place, and what they saw filled them with horror. In place of the Ark of the Covenant, there was now a 30-foot bronze image of Judas Christopher. The priests fell to the floor, tearing their robes in grief. The masses in the court stared at the screens, not yet comprehending what they were seeing. As they watched, the image raised its arms. The people gaped as it opened its mouth to speak. Citizens of our world, hear me, the image said. The resonant voice was unmistakably that of Judas Christopher. The lips and jaws moved in perfect sync with the words, and somehow the bronze surface moved as fluidly as human skin. Even the muscles of the torso and arms contracted naturally with each gesture the image made. Today, I announce that I am not only your political ruler, I am also your one true God, and you must have no other. Serve me and you will prosper and live long on the earth. Continue to serve your little gods and spirits, and you will surely die. Let those who have ears hear and obey. When the statue's mouth ceased moving, the image returned to its original position. The crowd sat in stunned silence as Archbishop Detherow again stepped to the podium. Ladies, gentlemen, 
and citizens watching around the world. The miracle you have witnessed today has been performed so that you may believe. It is the work of the most powerful spirit of the invisible realm, a spirit that is guiding our president and his servants. That same spirit will guide you as well if you will but believe and submit. Today, I call on you to make that choice. The archbishop paused and looked at the crowd before continuing. I now call for a moment of silence during which all of us in this assembly and beyond will fall to our knees and bow to the image as a sign of our allegiance and devotion. Nearly every person in the massive crowd responded immediately. Only about a hundred remained standing. Half of the dissenters bolted from the court. Those who refused to bow and those who ran were seized and escorted away by armed troops, never to be seen again. Using both intimidation and military conquest, President Christopher soon extended his rule throughout the civilized world. But the widespread wars, in addition to unprecedented natural disasters, left the planet in economic chaos. The countries under Christopher's leadership demanded that he solve the problem. He used the crisis to his advantage, bringing both the global economy and the world's religious practices under his unchecked control. Detheroe took over all the networks to deliver an address to every nation on earth. Citizens of the world, listen as I declare to you a new law that President Christopher has issued by executive decree. To put an end to the current economic crisis and correct the historical imbalance between those in poverty and those with plenty, he has devised a system to ensure that food and goods are evenly distributed throughout the world. Every person on earth shall be given a number, enabling him to buy and sell the food, goods, and services necessary to function in society. There will be no exceptions. Every individual must carry his or her assigned number as a license to participate in commerce, either as a supplier or a consumer. By accepting this number, you will agree to discontinue worshiping any god of any religion, whether you are a Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Jew, Christian, or any other faith. Peace and plenty will come only when religious divisions are obliterated. All people must unite in worshiping the undisputed master of our world, Judas Christopher, who is the physical manifestation of the power of the air, anointed to bring this planet into a new era of peace and goodwill. Over the next several weeks, the process of assigning the numbers proceeded in earnest. Notices were placed on the internet, TV, and radio. Letters were sent to every person with a known address, and government workers called on homes in remote areas around the globe. The recipients of the numbers were given three options. They could have the number encoded electronically on an existing credit card, they could receive a new encoded card, or they could have a microchip implanted beneath the skin of their hands or foreheads. These chips would be scanned as authorization for any type of commercial transaction. In time, every known person on the planet bore a number, with the exception of a few primitive jungle tribes that had no communication with the civilized world, and pockets of Christians in several countries. 
Many of these Christians, it was believed, had escaped to remote areas where they lived in isolated communities, fed by sympathetic friends and family members. Many of them simply starved. One evening, as President Christopher and his sidekick, Archbishop Detherow, sat together by the fireplace in the presidential palace, an aide entered and announced that the numbering was complete. The president said nothing at first, but after a moment, he began to chuckle. The chuckle soon swelled into a laugh so contagious that Detherow couldn't help but join in. Their laughter grew higher and louder. Soon, the two men were laughing uncontrollably. Their time had come. I think every, uh, every week we come and listen and read through the Scriptures, I'm uh, reminded or grateful that uh, I won't have to go through all that and uh, thankful for God's Word to kind of uh, remind us of that. But I want you to turn to Revelations 13. We're going to take time. Uh, it's been several weeks since we... Uh, were, uh, went over the Beast of the Seas was the last one went over. I think uh, it's been several weeks, and even prior to that, uh, we had done a review as well. So it's been, uh, I know I've slept a few times since then, and so let's, uh, but in, in Revelation 13, uh, the first few verses uh, talk about um, the Beast from the Sea, which was, uh, as we looked over a few weeks ago, was the Antichrist. And it goes right into uh, what we uh, looked at tonight or listened to tonight was the um, beast of the earth. So let's read. I want to read uh, starting in verse 1, Revelation 13. It says, Then I stood on the, on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. <clears throat> now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power. Again, the dragon being a reference to who? Satan. Very good. Some of you are still awake, right? <clears throat> to, and uh, the dragon gave him his power, by, uh, the last part of verse 2, his throne and great authority. Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it were, as if it had been mortally wounded. Again, uh, referencing today the um, really, all throughout, Satan's goal is, uh, is to counterfeit what Christ has already done. And so this is a counterfeit to the resurrection. So, um, and you re read in the wording here, it says, um, as if, or verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. So again, it's not that he actually uh, did die and was erected, resurrected, but that he uh, fooled people into thinking that. And his Verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. Uh, again, a reference, they worshiped uh, Satan who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is also to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to, over, and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose name has not been written in the book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And if anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints." 
so then let's pick up and we'll begin reading or continue reading in verse uh, number 11. And so most likely, I'm guessing your Bible has uh, a transition there or another uh, subheading. Mine says the beast from the earth. Uh, so again, we'll start in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke uh, like a dragon. <clears throat> and he exercises all authority of the first beast. And so here's the reference, and, and we'll kind of get into this in your outline, but uh, the authority that this second beast... Uh, so the first beast is reference to who? The Antichrist. The second beast then is a reference to the false prophet. All right, and so the false prophet here it says the, uh, that he got his authority from the first beast. So the false prophet, who is the second beast, got a story from the first beast. I'm not confusing you yet, uh, which is the Antichrist. I, I think I'm confused. Uh, in his presence and, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that even makes fire come out from the uh, heaven on the earth inside of them. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by this, those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast uh, should speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. It causes all both great or both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads, or on their foreheads. And then not one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is six, uh, six, six, six. There, I paused. I said four times, didn't I? Uh, so we'll kind of walk through this outline, and, and before we get into that, let me read this quote uh, from David Jeremiah. It says, No one should doubt uh, the power of religion in human life. Throughout history, it has been used to inspire and unite populations, and so it will be during the tribulation when the Antichrist, his spiritual assistant, will use his satanic power to promote the worship of the world leader. And how true it is that uh, when you study history... Uh, there's been some major atrocities that have taken place in the name of religion. And that's but basically what's going to again happen uh, during this time of tribulation. Um, and so just a few thoughts about the, the, the uh, false prophet. Um, we don't know who he is. It doesn't really give us much information about who he is. Um, we don't really know when he will come on the stage, um, the national stage. Um, and... and so maybe a question is, uh, is it possible <clears throat> that the, the false prophet is alive today? Yes or no? It's possible, right? But we don't know. And so what do we know? We do know that uh, as we read through this text and some other texts, we know what it will be like, we know what it will do, and we know what will be his end. All right. So just kind of walking through... Uh, the outline there, the first one there says his profile. So really, what, what is he like? And the verse we read in Revelations 13, uh, 11 kind of gives the reference there. And I saw another beast coming again. So when I had the whole confusing first beast, second beast, second beast, this is the second beast coming from the earth. <clears throat> he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Um, 
What do you suppose that the, the reference to the lamb is a counterfeit to or a reference to? Right? To Christ, right? He's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so again, um, what do you suppose then that seems quite obvious what the reference that uh, he's like the dragon, who's the reference there to? Is to Satan, right? And uh, similar to what, what Jesus said, uh, can, you, can you think of a quote Jesus gave or a statement he said that would think to reference one that's like a lamb but's really like the dragon? Is, can you think of a scripture where Jesus talked about that? Maybe not the word dragon, but the word lamb. Anyone think of something? Yeah, a lamb in sheep's clothing, right? So Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophet who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves, all right? So again, Jesus referencing um, the false prophet. Um, and so if you want to write these references down, we won't take time uh, to read them this evening, but other references of the beast uh, of the earth or the false prophet. Uh, it's Revelation sixteen thirteen. Revelation 16, 13, the next one is Revelation 19, verse 20. And then also Revelations 20 and verse 10. And those last two are really references to what will be his end, so we'll probably get to those a little bit later tonight. Um, so really, again, we're giving a quick overview of his profile. The second one, uh, his purpose so again, verse we already read, Revelations 13, verse 12. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Um, so then you have on your outline there that, uh, again, uh, there's nothing original with Satan. He just always tries to deceive or to counterfeit uh, who Christ is or who God is. And there you see on your outline the reference there of the Trinity uh, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, um, and then also the unholy trinity that we've now gone through this third one. So uh, we had the dragon, which is Satan, we had the beast of the sea, which is the Antichrist, and now the beast of the earth, which is the false uh, prophet. So what um, David Jeremiah, and I'm sure other theologians have uh, termed as the unholy trinity, um, and so when you think about what the role of the false prophet is, his role is to bring glory to the Antichrist and to point glory to him. Um, and, and, and similar as God gave uh, power and authority to Jesus, so also Satan will give his, uh, what power and authority he has uh, to the Antichrist. Um, again, referencing Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty seven says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father. Again, reference of the authority Jesus had through God the Father. Again, uh, most of us are familiar. Uh, we should be, at least after the last few weeks, familiar with Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Uh, but verse 18 says, uh, and Jesus spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So, uh, again, similar to uh, Christ getting his authority from God the Father, Antichrist will get his, his, his power and what authority he does have from, from Satan. Uh, so his, his profile, his purpose, um, and then uh, we kind of really went through this already, but his power. Um, so if you want to, um, again, kind of reference this in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 8, which we already read, 
uh, verse 2. We'll just kind of give you the highlights of that if you want to underline there in verse 2 of Revelation 13. It says, the dragon gave him his power. Um, in verse 4, it says, so they worshiped the dragon who gave the authority to the beast. Uh, verse 5, uh, again, he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Uh, verse 7 it says it was granted to him to make war. In other words, he was given the power to make war. Then it goes on to say, and authority was given him over every tri uh, tribe, tongue, uh, and nation. So again, those are references that uh, Antichrist was given power by Satan. And then uh, again, as we continued reading already in Revelation 13, uh, verses 12 and 15, we see the Antichrist gives his power to the false prophet. Um, and we won't take time to reference those. And then you got three quick points. Um, I think for sake of time, we won't really get into all those. Uh, the calling down fire from heaven, again, uh, trying to mimic, uh, really trying to fulfill the prophecy of uh, Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day. Elijah being the prophet, member of Mount Carmel, who called down fire from uh, um, from heaven. And so again, another counterfeit uh, of Satan. The next one there on your bullet points is the commanding that the image uh, be built. Um, and then references there, then also causing the image uh, to breathe and to speak. Um, so, you know, how this happens, uh, other than to say that it's a demonic power, uh, it's about the only way to say, you know, that as it says here in Scripture, that the beast uh, would speak, right? And so his, his profile, his purpose, his power, the next one, um, his program. So let's read, uh, I think it's there typed up for you on your outline, Revelations 13, 16, uh, and 17. He says, causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on the right hand and, or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except those who have the mark or the name of the beast or the, the number of his, his name. Um, how many of you are uh, like numbers people? You like numbers, right? Anybody in here? Bobby, I mean, come on, right? Any numbers guys in here? Matt? Matt gets excited and talking about numbers, all right? How many of you are that anti-numbers person, right? Tyler, for sure. Tyler and Matt sit next to each other. So I, was, I, was, I just thought it was interesting, um, you know, because if you, there's a lot of shows out there that try to talk about numbers and, well, any, you know, you can come up with about any equation to prove something you want to prove, anyways. Um, I'm not smart enough to do that, but um, I was just going to read a little bit here in the book about um, the number 666. Um, and it says here, so there have been countless theories about the meaning of the number 666 over the centuries. Um, people have uh, scoured scripture for clues, trying to find significance uh, in merely uh, coincidental facts. Uh, for instance, the number appears in the 18th verse of Revelation 13, 18 is 6 plus 6 plus 6. One of the largest men who ever lived was Goliath. He was six cubits tall. The head of his spear weighed 600 shekels, and he had six pieces of armor. I'm not going to continue, but he goes on to talk about his theory. Again, I would say theory of what, um, what he thinks most likely this number would represent. Uh, perhaps the most likely answer is that 
in the Bible, six is the number for human beings, which we just, which we just read there in verse 17 of Revelation 13. It says, um, <clears throat> find it, uh, the number of his, let's see, let me read it. Verse 17, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark with the name of the beast, with the number of the, his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a uh, man. All right, and his number is 666. And so that's what he's kind of referencing here. Uh, but let me continue reading. It says, uh, the number of human beings, which is six. People are created on the sixth day, and they are to work six of seven days. The Hebrew should not be a slave for more than six years. God's number, on the other hand, is seven. He created seven days in a week. There are seven colors in the visible spectrum, seven notes in a musical scale. Biblically, there are seven, um, seven feasts of Jehovah, seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, seven secrets in the kingdom parables. Uh, at the fall of Jericho, seven priests marched in front of army bearing, uh, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns. On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times in Joshua 6. And then he goes on, in the book of Revelation, which was more properly titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which we talked about, uh, the number seven is used more than 50 times. There are seven churches, seven spirits, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, and a lot more. Uh, and then he goes, uh, seven letters to the seven churches, I am seven I am statements of Christ, and even seven songs in heaven. Um, so then he goes on to say, seven is God's number, the number of completeness. And six is the number for mankind, humans, the number of incompleteness. Perhaps this is the meaning of 666. The human beings, even to the triple, fall short of God's perfection. On our own, we are incomplete, and we long for fulfillment in the perfect completeness of God. Uh, and then uh, Donald Barnhouse says this, The number 666 reminds us there is something missing. The missing something is a someone. Uh, he is a seven. The mark of perfection the complete uh, number. So that's, anyways, it's not like proving anything. It's just a theory of, of the fact that God would use his number seven, the number of man uh, incomplete without God, uh, 666. Um, again, so uh, I think I've asked this a few times, but how many of you remember watching, uh, <clears throat> I think it was a trilogy, maybe a fourth one that came out, uh, Mark of the Beast and uh, Distant Thunder, what was the third one? It should be the most obvious one, I think. What was it? Anybody remember? Thief in the Night. Thank you. Uh, Thief in the Night, Distant Thunder, and Mark the Beast. How many of you watched those? Raise your hand and look around. I, I really thought more people would have watched those than that. Uh, that's not even like maybe 20% of us in here. Uh, it was a, how many of you uh, were scared to death when you watched those? Okay. Uh, and... And uh, I remember as a kid watching those and uh, being scared to death as a kid. I also remember when I was a youth pastor finding those on VHS on some internet site and making all the kids watch them on the bus while we drove to New York. Uh, so they, uh, but it's, it's amazing to me how much, um, <clears throat> you know, as a kid watching that, how much of an impact that had on me, even as I read scripture that, oh, that's why the scene in the movie was like that, because it was based on, on Scripture. 
Um, and one of the greatest things is, again, as you reference and you study uh, the end times and you think about um, the chaos that will be in the world and you think about the stage that's going to be set for, um, as mentioned in the audio, this one world power and one world religion. And so as you uh, kind of process through that, when you think of the role of the Antichrist will be to bring the worlds together under uh, a political uh, ideology. And then the false prophet here, which is the second beast, is going to bring the world together under the idea of religion. Um, and, and you, again, as, as Je- David Jeremiah, one of the first quotes uh, that I read tonight, talks about the power, uh, if you have uh, the government and religion, and those two are in control, how devastating that can be or how um, controlling that can be. And, and again, if you've studied history, you've seen in periods of time in history or areas or regions um, what that can do. And it pretty much almost always as you study history leads to ultimate power and ultimate destruction. Um, and so it's just when you think about um, how chaotic the world will be after the rapture takes place. Um, how, um, you know, you think we live in a chaotic world now and it will not even compare to what's going to take place. And uh, again, I, you know, when w- people always ask the question, well, where's, you know, you don't really find much prophecy or any prophecy about America, right? Because as Americans, we're the greatest and we should be in here, right? And, and, and I think there's a lot of theories on why uh, we're not in there. We're obviously not in the picture, um, at least not mentioned. Um, and, and I think, especially if you just to think rationally through that, um, again, the stage is set, uh, all major prophecies have been fulfilled, that the Lord could return tonight, couldn't he? Um, and and uh, we would probably be all great and excited about that, right? Uh, I know when I was younger, I was like, ah, there's a few more things I want to accomplish or I thought I wanted to accomplish. And, uh, but currently in our culture, when you think of the world stage, what the highest population or density of people that will be taken who are believers, where would you say that would probably take place at? Would be right now, at least, in America. Um, you know, 300 years ago, that, that was Europe, right? And how much Europe has changed. Uh, but so if the Lord were to come back in, in present day, um, um, whether we want to uh, believe it or not, we probably have the highest uh, density population of believers than any other culture. And so, you know, again, this is just rationally thinking, my rationale, that doesn't really amount to much, but thinking is that uh, because of the devastation that will be here in America, because of all the believers who will be taken out, then we won't be on the world stage anymore. Uh, We'll pretty much be obsolete, you know, as far as a world power. But thinking through how chaotic it is going to be, you, you know, you see how the stage will be set for a one world government and a one-world religion, and for exactly how Scripture spells it out to happen. Uh, but always, when you again, when you study the end times, you, you go to this number five, this on your outline, uh, his punishment. And again, we're referencing the second beast, and 
most references of their punishment, it's going to have both beasts mentioned together. But Revelations 19.20 says, Then the beast was captured with him the false prophet. So again, referencing the, as we've talked about it tonight, the first and the second beast are the Antichrist and the false prophet. It says, Who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, those who worshiped the image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire with brimstone. And so we understand that the end or the judgment for both beasts will be eternity in a lake of fire. Um, and, and when you think about the two different people that will be um, in the tribulation period, in reference to what we talk about tonight, so the, the, the false prophet will set up this currency that you only can buy, sell, and be involved in trade unless you have the mark of the beast. And, and really with that mark of the beast is you are claiming that that, uh, that false prophet and that antichrist are God. And so you make a decision at that moment, I'm either serving the one true God, and I am on my own, and you're going to be killed, or you're going to worship the God of this earth at that, that period of time and receive the mark of the beast so you can live. Um, and so it's a, ch- a choice of life or death, isn't it? Um, and what's going to be the outcome of those two groups of people? Because there'll be uh, the majority of the people are going to receive the mark of the beast, bow and worship the image, and then there'll be a remnant that choose not to receive the mark of the beast. So what's going to be the end for those two? So Revelation 16, verse 1 through 2, referencing those who would take the mark of the beast. Revelation 16, verse 1 through 2, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and the foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. So there's judgment that is coming. Revelations 14, uh, 9 through 11 says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. And, and so during this tribulation period, those who choose life are actually choosing what? Death, eternal death. Those who choose death are actually choosing what? Eternal life. And, and that's very, you know, um, black and white as you read through here in scriptures in the tribulation period. But in reality, is that not the same for us today before the rapture takes place? You know, in, in scripture you say, he who chooses to save his life, will what? Lose it. And, and as a believer, I'm supposed to daily do what? Daily die to myself. And so daily dying to myself, I'm choosing to live for the Lord, right? And 
practically, I mean, so theologically, we can make that statement pretty easy. I get up every morning and say, Lord, I want to serve you today and I daily die to self. Um, if I remember, that's a pretty easy statement to make, right? Um, practically, how much harder is that to do? And, and what does that look like in your world and your day-to-day decisions? Um, and I don't think that, at least for me, oftentimes decisions I make, do I make with a spiritual mindset? Like, am I choosing my will in this decision, or am I choosing God's will in this decision? Um, and so that's why it says daily I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to be a living sacrifice. Um, and then Matthew chapter 10, 28. So again, we talked about two groups of people, those in the tribulation period that receive the mark of the beast, and here's their judgment. Those who choose not to receive the mark of the beast, who will be, will be killed because of that decision. In verse, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, it says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body and hell. And then specifically talking of these people who do not take the mark of the beast, who are killed for their faith during that tribulation period is, is Revelation 20, verse 4. Revelation 24, and it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the soul of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their foreheads, or on their hands. So again, verse 4 tells what those who don't receive the mark of the beast, what's going to happen to them. They're going to be killed. And it specifically mentions here, uh, beheaded. And he says, I saw those in the last sentence of verse 4, chapter 20, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so those who died during the tribulation period for their faith will enter into the millennial reign uh, with Christ. And again, to me, it's, it's a reminder that as these who will make a great sacrifice give up their life in order to follow God during the tribulation period, although the drastic you know, decision in my life to... I'm not literally going to have a physical death if I choose to live for God. I don't have that choice currently. But every day I am faced with a choice of who I'm going to live for. And every day in, in every day, I'm going to have multiple decisions. Am I going to live for Christ or for myself? And we face those decisions every day, don't we? On, on a, a, a huge scale, whether that's a small decision, a big decision. And every day as a believer, I should strive to follow Christ whether that's persecution or whether that's not persecution. Um, and, and again, as we study the, the revelation of Christ, it should be encouraging to know that God wins in the end, right? And if we're a believer, we're on the winning side. But it should all, always also be a challenge that every single day I have an opportunity, every single day I have a decision, multiple times in every single day I have a decision, am I going to live my life for myself or live my life for Christ. And in my life, too many times I choose to live for myself. And I, I strive, I hope you strive, that every day I get a little better at that. 
Every day I, I learn to die to self a little more and live for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this night. Lord, I thank you again for the privilege to study. And Lord, uh, even when we think through the future, when those who will, will have to make a life or death decision to follow you. Lord, I think of even today and all across the world, there's people who are faced with that decision every day, that a, a literal life and death decision. I, I'm thankful that, that we have the freedom to worship and the freedom not to worship. And Lord, I pray that in that freedom, we would choose to worship you, to live for you, and to sacrifice for you. Uh, bless us as we're dismissed. Lord, uh, give us opportunities this week uh, to share our faith with someone. In your name we pray. Amen.